Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best and Flanagan, a team dedicated to building uniquely close relationships with all clients, including individuals, businesses, nonprofits, and generations of family members seeking legal advice. Online at bestlaw.com. Best and Flanagan, lawyers you know. Um, really, you know, failure is just part of the process. Um, and we failed so many times along the way. Um, I mean, we're not even running the business that we originally ideated on. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective principal business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Here's the thing about kids. They grow quickly. The typical baby churns through seven sizes of clothing in the first two years of life. That's a lot of outgrown onesies sitting in boxes, waiting to be handed down or given away. As new moms and ad execs, Dory Graff and Mary Fallon saw this market as a huge opportunity. It was nearly a decade ago, early days of the iPhone, when they created Kitizen, an online marketplace that made selling gently used children's apparel as easy as snapping a photo and posting it on their app. Parents loved it. Today, with growth in the resale clothing market far outpacing new, Kitizen is approaching a million users. Now brands want to get in on the resale game, and they too are coming to Kitizen to help them create their own resale marketplaces. Everything is clicking for Kitizen, but it's been a long journey to get here, longer than Dory and Mary might have expected when they were ad agency colleagues brainstorming business ideas. And that's where we begin with co-founder and CEO, Dory Graff. All the accounts that I worked on went really deep into understanding the consumer behaviors of moms, um, you know, really getting inside our head and then taking it to kind of that next step of how can you provide, make life easier for her? Mm. So advertising wasn't just about getting your name in front of her and, you know, running ads and doing all that, but how can you provide something of service uh, that is useful to her that can make her life easier. And that's how to really win, you know, win the hearts and the minds uh, of moms. Interesting. So, I mean, mm -hmm. that sort of laid the groundwork for mm -hmm. Kitizen. Exactly. During that time, I mean, was there something in your head that said, eventually, I want to start something of my own? I mean, did you feel like an entrepreneur within? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I knew uh, that for whatever reason, I felt it, you know, in my, in my, you know, deep down that I wanted to build something of my own, um, hmm. whether it's just, you know, being an innovator or just wanting to create. Um, you know, when, when you're on the agency side, everybody else is doing the, the creating of the business and you're just trying to promote it or sell it or um, sure. brand it or whatever it might be. Um, and I really, you know, after working with business owners and business leaders, you know, that I saw that the, that's really what I wanted to be doing. Would you have known that? Could you have articulated that like as far back as college? Did you know you had that in you? Hmm. I probably didn't have it formed in my head at that time as, you know, that my career path. Um, but I wouldn't it wouldn't have surprised me at that time. Yeah. I, I feel like today, I mean, there's so much more emphasis on entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and that as a major and mm -hmm. people, you know, jumping right in. And I wonder sometimes, you know, all of the experiences you have leading up to that yeah. can be really valuable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You figure out what you want to do. Oh, it's absolutely has shaped um, where I am now. Yeah. So, OK, so you knew you wanted to do something, but you didn't know mm -hmm. what. Mm -hmm. So how does that go? Are you are you kind of like. Are you trying out ideas? Do you have mm -hmm. a notebook of them? What did you know approximately what sort of space you wanted to be in? I was always open to kind of work, you know, business partners and ideas. And, you know, I remember at one point there was somebody I worked with and we got a letterpress and we were doing like letterpress stuff. And I was always 
kind of, you know, dabbling in things on the side to see what would take. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I met Mary and it was, you know, we just knew just from working together, how well we worked together and how we complemented each other, you know, her on the creative side and I was on the business side. And it you were just, at the same agency. We were. Yeah. At okay. Catalyst Studios. It, it no longer exists. Uh, but that's where we met. Um, and then we were pregnant at the same time ah. and um, had our, our, our boys are two months apart. So we went through that whole process together mm-hmm. and knew that agency life and home life, you know, the, what, that, that wasn't going to mix very well. You hmm. know, the agency world, I, I enjoy it a lot. And there, I loved, there was no working from home then. There was no working from home and it was, it was intense. Yeah. You know, you just were working a lot um, and, you know, and it was at the demands of other people. Um, you know, they... So you didn't have as much control over your own schedule. Right. Because I bet you work just as much now. But mm-hmm. You get to decide when and what hours. Well, and that's exactly it. You know, that's what we love um, and wanted to create for ourselves was we we enjoy working hard. And mm-hmm. we were very passionate people who, you know, love, um, you know, just being ambitious and like really going for something. Mm-hmm. Um, so we enjoy that. Um, but... We needed to do it at a, on a schedule that was that worked for our family life, sure. which meant that you know we would put our kids down and then you know work you know late at night yeah. or whatever it might be you yep. know. But we're still gonna run to a soccer game at three o'clock in the afternoon. Absolutely, um, yeah. So okay, so you knew you wanted to work together and you knew you wanted flexibility. Did you know what you were gonna do? No. <laughs> How did you figure it out? <laughs> Well, uh, let's see. You know, that took, we would get together, um, you know, usually, you know, at night with a glass of wine (laughs) and, you know, throw around ideas. Um, And eventually, eventually we landed on Kittizen, obviously. It did, we initially launched with, um, instead of Kittizen, it was Itizen. Which was a different, a totally different concept, although there are connectors that kind of weave the whole story together. Okay, well, tell us, what was it is in? Um, It was a way to attach digital content to physical things as they move from one person to the next. So you could collect the story of something over time, um, and it would have digital content, whether it was photos or text or videos or whatnot, you know, actually attached to this thing. Um, and so this was what year? 2010. Okay. And it was, you know, kind of around when like the Internet of Things was starting to come together. Collaborative consumption um, was also, you know, a thing um, that was starting to appear and, you know, a lot of startups around that. So we were kind of involved in that from a startup movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of interest in it as in, you know, the concept of it. Um, a lot of artists using it to attach, you know, content to their artwork before, you know, moved on to whoever acquired it, um, you know, hobbyists, um, whatever it might be. But what we found was there was a lot of communities coming together around things, hmm. you know, specific things that they were passionate about and wanting to make sure that that content um, went along with it and that it could, you can continue, you know, to collect that story as things move from one person to the next. Sounds kind of, the way you're describing it, it sounds like a precursor to NFTs. Exactly. <laughs> you yeah. Were, you were that forward thinking, Dory. We used QR codes. Uh-huh. Um, and that's, yeah, we used QR codes. And at the time, you know, we, you know, we, yeah, I guess it was a little early for all of that. Right. But but so how far did you get down down the path with it isn't? I mean, you fully started it, launched yeah, it. We launched it. Okay. Um, and you know we had you know our early adopters using it. Um, we got a lot of good press. Um, and kind of we you know we went to South by Southwest and we oh. spoke there on a panel and you know we were doing. All, all these sort of things. And we were like, oh, my gosh, this is taking off. This is happening. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, then we had to take it to the next level of, OK, we have our early adopters. How do we get, 
you know, the masses using this and realized there's really just too many barriers. You know, people just weren't there yet in terms of, you know, dealing with QR codes and understanding that, you know, th there was digital content, you know, that could be associated with an actual physical thing. And, um, you know, so it, yeah, it was just, and it was too clunky at the time. You know, that whole, you know, RFID was something we were hoping would become bigger than it did. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we thought that, you know, phones would just have it and could hold it near an item and mm -hmm. it would just like your content would appear. Mm -hmm. um, so that didn't really fully materialize. So how long did it take you to figure out this wasn't going to be the thing? Um, it, a couple years, but then, you know, and then so Mary and I were freelancing at that point we left our agency jobs but still had to pay the bills so we were doing work on the side but mm -hmm. still you know trying to figure out what this was going to evolve into and had you did it require a lot of investment i mean did you put a lot of money into building it is in did you have to hire engineers we did but we were doing you know a lot of friends and family mm -hmm. and, and you know favors and and that sort of thing okay um, trade, you know, we we do, you know, work for trade, yeah. whatever it might be. Sure, sure. As, you know, creative as we could get um, with all of that. But yeah, that was, that was tough. Okay. Um, and then, you know, actually, initially, the, 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 the foundation of Kitizen was built off of what we had for Itizen. Hmm. Um, we, we just kind of morphed it originally. Um, because and the idea for Kitizen came out of it as in, you know, and really looking at who was using it as in and, and why and talking to these different communities of people. Who and, was using it? What? Give me an example. Yeah. I mean, I would say it was creators were using it mostly like artists or anybody who was like creating things um, that had wanted, you know, the, the backstory of these things to go with the item. Um, and so, so I see a piece of art, mm -hmm. there's a QR code, mm -hmm. I zap it, it's going to tell me about the artist or mm -hmm. about the piece. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And you then we're providing that before mm -hmm. people knew how to do it themselves. Right. Okay. Exactly. Cool. Um, and, um, and so, you know, talking to you know, what people were, what we heard over and over again was we actually, we need a marketplace. Like all of these things, you know, yes, you're you're collecting the story as it moves from one person to the next, but we need that actual marketplace so we can transact and, and match people up. You know, we need hmm. them. Um, and there was a movement you know, at the time of people moving away from eBay or Craigslist or, you know, the, the, the marketplaces that are, you know, kind of do everything. They mm -hmm. wanted it to be more community based. Um, they wanted like minded people. Um, buying and selling, you know, with other people who were equally passionate about whatever it was. Sure. And so we looked at the different verticals. Um, you know, we were still young parents at the time. Um, and you know, what we knew from our agency world was moms in terms of consumers. And then we became moms and then really understood it. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, the pain point, we felt that pain point of, kids churning through stuff um, and you feel like you're like this warehouse manager um, especially early on when kids are going through so many sizes so quickly mm -hmm. you know even the, their gear and toys and everything you're just constantly you know moving things in and out of your house totally and you're wanting to bring in you know as a mom it feels good to bring in stuff into your house that is you know good high quality stuff mm -hmm. you know you, you don't want to just like a ton of junk because you have a ton of stuff. Like mm -hmm. you are, you have the bins and bins of stuff. You don't want more stuff. You just want like, you want good things and you right. want to be selective and, you know, um, and you know, so you want access to these higher quality things. Um, you know, sustainability is very important to both me and to Mary. Mm -hmm. And we knew so much of this stuff already existed out there. Um, neither of us had had family or, you know, friends even who were having kids at that time. Um, so we didn't have that hand-me-down network. And so really, in, in a way, Kitizen was our way to leverage technology to create that hand-me-down network with mm -hmm. people all across the country. 
so that we could access, you know, what we've always referred to as our communal wealth. There's so much stuff out there. You know, kids often, you know, grow out of things before they even use them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how can we, you know, we don't, and honestly, you don't want just those hand-me-downs, that bags and bags of stuff, you know, from somebody that might not be the right size or the right season or style or whatever it might be. You know, then it's just more stuff cluttering your house. Sure. Do you remember the aha moment when when you realized Itizen could morph into Kitizen and you could create this digital resale marketplace? Did, it, did yeah. it happen that smoothly or was it kind of over a period of months? Yeah, it was over time. It was over months. Um, you know, at first we were like, marketplace, marketplace. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. A, you know, vertically specific, community-focused marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was just like, you know, the aha moment definitely was kid stuff. It was like, oh, my gosh, you know, nobody's doing that. Um, there's clearly a need. Uh, moms, you know, the, the, the desire for community, you know, is very critical when you become a new mom mm-hmm. um, because you really do feel somewhat in isolation. Um, and also at the same time, it was a weird thing happening on Facebook where all and Instagram where there was all these buy-sell trade groups forming right. specifically around certain kids' brands. Yeah. And, you know, so there would be, thou- you know, th- these groups were created by moms, mm-hmm. by individuals, and then they would have thousands and thousands of people join these groups to buy and sell a particular brand. What made you think you could compete with that? Facebook's already out there. They're already yeah. on Facebook. If that's working for them, what's yeah. going to make them go over to Kitizen to, to do those buying and selling transactions? Because they didn't have the tools to transact. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, it was a, a very weird process to buy and sell from one another. You know, you gave each other your PayPal address and then you invoice separately through PayPal. And, you know, you didn't have like an order history. You didn't have you know, reviews, you didn't have any protection, you know, it was Mm -hmm. just, it was very much the Wild West in terms of conducting transactions with other people. Right. Um, So you you were going to create, I mean, I know for me personally, and I was at the same point and had kids and was turning Mm -hmm. through the clothes. And when I first learned about Kitizen, what was so remarkable to me, and I think it was actually I, I'm embarrassed to say that it was a little bit before we were as conscious about the sustainability message. Yeah. It was more the ease of use mm-hmm. that I didn't feel like I had time to go, you know, post things on yeah. eBay or Craigslist or any of that. Yeah. But with Kitizen, I could literally take a picture on my phone, yeah. post it yeah. and sell it yep. without ever leaving my phone. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> Why, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, so when you had that epiphany, how long did it take to then, you know, get the technology ready yeah. and, and launch? So when we first launched, we didn't even have payment processing or anything like that. It was literally like an Instagram just for kids stuff. Huh. Um, because we wanted to validate the idea first. We're like, okay, you know, and, and as entrepreneurs, you know, you are constantly trying to test and learn and mm-hmm. validate an idea before you, you know, put a ton of your own money into it, a ton of your own time. Sure. Um, Just the way investors, you know, want you to show incremental progress um, as you're building something to show that there's traction, that there's a market for this. And, you know, you're so we went about it the same way. And we had it is in at the time and made some enough tweaks to it um, to put it out there in the app store um, as an app. Um, and it was Instagram for kid stuff, literally. Uh, you still used PayPal, you know, to transact. Ah. Um, so, you know, it wasn't all that different. From, sure. You know, but we just wanted to see would people use this. And Is did there, they? Yeah. We had thousands of people, you know. Amazing. From the beginning. That's exciting. It. Yeah. And we're like, oh, my gosh, we don't, <laughs> we don't even have the tools that you need. So they've got the audience. Now, how do they build the business? We'll find out right after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best & Flanagan. Understand, identify, manage, protect, and realize the value of your intellectual property and other business assets. Expect a customized approach from Best & Flanagan with legal advice carefully tailored to protect your interest within the context of your overall business strategy, goals, and vision. Best in Flanagan, a legal team dedicated to understanding where you want to go and helping you get there. 
Local advocacy and advice from lawyers you know. Online at bestlaw.com. Itizen has just become Kitizen, and people are responding. Here's what happens next. So then do you quickly jump into creation Mm -hmm. mode and build it? Did you have to raise money at that point? What did you do? Yeah, so we had to raise some money so we could hire a developer. And and this was 2014? I know. 2013. 2013, okay. Yeah, this was 2013 when we were building it. Um, and then finally changed our name. Mm-hmm. We were like, okay, we gotta gotta go to Kidizen mm-hmm. instead of Itizen. Well, how perfect though uh-huh. that worked out. It was meant to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so we um, raised enough money to hire a developer. Um, and, did, and was that through friends and family? Was it angel investors? What'd you do? It was a mix of friends and family and some angel. Okay. Um, and. Um, yeah, so we hired a developer and built our first iOS app. Um, and so that was built, you know, from scratch. And uh, then from there, we were able to build our the first Android app. Um, and then actually we went to web. Um, so kind of did things a little bit backwards. But for moms, you know, they're on their phone. So sure. we needed to focus on mobile. And the idea was, I mean, the app was free to download mm-hmm. and use. You were going to make money by taking a percentage of yeah. the transaction. Yep, exactly. Did you get enough traction right away to, I mean, did you start making money? How, how, long, did it, how long did it take for, for it to become profitable? Um, we became profitable uh, we hit cash flow break even last year. Okay, so it takes a while. <laughs> yes, longer oh, yeah. longer than you thought it would. Yeah. Um. No, I mean, most startups, to be honest, are burning more than they're mm-hmm. they're making. Um. And I think that even you know some of the you know competing marketplaces out there, the the big ones, are still not profitable. Yeah. Um. So you know, it's not a surprise. Um, you know, we, we've made the choice to not raise as much as, you know, I think we've been very capital efficient. So that's a part of the reason why we were able to, um, you know, get to profitability. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it takes way more than you would ever think. Did you know that going in? No. I mean, would you have done it if you had known? That, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, we, Yeah. I mean, early, early on when we were getting into it, we had n- no idea what we were getting ourselves into. Mm-hmm. No, you know, we weren't even all that familiar with the startup world and the community and uh, all of that. Um, we were we learned a ton in the mm-hmm. first few years. Um, and yeah, we, we had no idea that it would take this much to to build a marketplace. Um, there, there's so much of that today. And I mean, it's sometimes some of the numbers are mind boggling when you look at the unicorns out there and how mm-hmm. much they're raising and then, oh, wait, yeah. but they're not even making money. How does that even work? Right. How, how do you know when you're in that position, you have customers, mm-hmm. you're not yet profitable. What gives you the confidence that you're on the right path, that, that you're, you know, that you're headed in the right direction and you are going to get there? Yeah. It's, it's, it's the user base. I mean, really, like if you are building a large user base um, that people want to use, you know, that you're solving a real problem for people um, and um, that, you know, they, they want to use you mm-hmm. um, and you use your product. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, it's pretty like when we started transacting millions of dollars worth of, of stuff um, for people. That it was amazing. It was yeah. amazing to to see all that happen, and um, and how quickly you know people just get um, involved and passionate about the community, um, which I think is possible because it is mostly you know it's all parents, mostly moms, um, all going you know connected in some sort of way um, through that experience of just parenthood, mm-hmm. um, and there's just something so much deeper that's happening you know people are making like f- good friends um hmm. with people from across the country we started to see um meetups like you know people getting together in person wow um groups you know getting together in certain cities um there's stories of people flying to meet up with other people amazing um we have so many people who say like they're best friends they found kitizen i know through selling clothing yeah. Um, how did they, how were they finding Kitizen? 
Yeah, good question, because we didn't have much of an ad budget. <laughs> a lot of it, you know, was referral, you know, so people telling other people. Um, word of mouth was, you know, critical in the beginning um, to our growth. Um, so we relied heavily on that. Mm -hmm. um, we did do, you know, some Facebook advertising, um, but not a ton. Uh, so it was, yeah, and, you know, and we... You know, we weren't getting a ton of press either. So it really, you know, we relied heavily on our user base to to help us grow. Yeah. Were there any big in those first few years? And I want to before the pandemic, because mm -hmm. I feel like things changed dramatically. And, yeah. and actually, we Twin Cities Business had you and Mary on the our tech 20 list of, you know, kind of startups or, or innovations yeah. to watch in 2020. And yeah. I went back and looked this morning and that came out pre-COVID. Yeah, yeah. And the quote from you was, you know, 2020 is going to be a big year. I mean, you were positioned. <laughs> I just don't think you knew exactly how, what kind of year it was going to be. But prior to that, were there any um, missteps or pivots or major adjustments that you had to make between that time of like 2014 and 2020? Was it just kind of slow and steady growth or how would you describe it? Oh, my gosh. There have been so many mistakes. Like what? <laughs> Well, I would say, like, when we very first launched Kitizen, we thought it was going to be local buy, sell, buying mm. and selling. Mm -hmm. um, and then 90% of orders were getting shipped. Mm -hmm. And we're like, oh, my gosh, shipping is not a barrier, you know, to this. And they were just doing that on their own. Yeah. It wasn't part of the no. app experience. Okay. Yeah. And so now, yeah. of course, we make it easy to get your label. And, sure. You know, it's um, part of the process. Yep. Uh, but at the time, it wasn't. And people were doing it anyway. Um, so that was that was somewhat of a surprise to us. Mm -hmm. And of course, we, you know, adjusted immediately to be able to provide shipping labels. And, and now everything is 100% shipped. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so that was that was one surprise. Um, was there anything you launched or, or tried that just didn't work? Yes. I mean, there's <laughs> always features that you... You know, there, as a certain point, you know, you try to use as much data as you can to drive your decisions. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a certain point in which, you know, you have to make certain assumptions and use your gut and say, like, no, I really, you know, really think that this is what people want. Um, and you put it out there and they don't. Hmm. Um, I mean, nothing has been like disastrous. Like we've never, you know, we would never invest a ton of time into something that we, you know, were absolutely unsure about. Mm -hmm. um, but we did, you know, you would, we would take risks from time to time. Um, I would say, like, you know, the collections feature is one uh, that we have in, in the app that people use, um, but we definitely anticipated that to be, you know, this is going to do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Actually, when we, we thought, you know, so first we launched with um, an iOS app and then Android, mm -hmm. and we were like, oh, my gosh. We're going to launch Android, and it's going to double our business. Yeah. And <laughs> no, no, your people were iOS people. Yeah. I mean, it's still a very small portion huh. um, of our user base. Yeah. I think one of the things that started to happen as we approach that 2020 marker, I sort of think of the before and the after, mm. um, is the um, kind of public attitudes about uh, conspicuous consumption and waste, particularly in the fashion industry. and um, Greta Turnberg and, and things like that, yeah. that sort of played to part of the business that you always believed in, but it wasn't the message you were able to lead with? We were, yeah, we were never able to lead with a sustainability message. You know, we tried, um, but that always, always seemed to be like a nice to have. Huh. Um, it wasn't, you know, something that would people would, you know, spend more money or, you know, um, necessarily actively seek out. Um, and that there's definitely been a, a shift with that. Um, you know, people more and more are, you know, using Kitizen, obviously, because, you know, if it, if it already exists, so that's about the most sustainable purchase you can make. <laughs> right, right. Well, what is the number that you that you quoted to me that, that resale, the resale market, resale apparel is growing 11 times? 11 times faster than retail. And um, kids wear is the number one fastest growing resale segment, mm -hmm. um, which isn't a surprise. I mean, when you just think about how 
much kids churn through stuff. Of Seven course. sizes in the first two years. So, <laughs> you know, as an adult and I look at my closet, like I don't have to buy anything new. Sure. I on you know, I could exist with my wardrobe. I mean, it wouldn't be very fashionable <laughs> in ten years, but I would survive, yeah. you know. It'd be vintage then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um and I do have things in my closet that, you know, were I wore in my twenties. Sure. You know? Um it fits a bit differently, but <laughs> But yeah, it's such a it's such a given with kids' yeah. clothes. But that... you can't send your kid, you know, in pants that you know are, are too short mm-hmm. or like you know don't button anymore. Sure, um, you know. So there's a real need there um, to constantly buy new stuff. You have to. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't have to be brand new. That's right. the thing. Right. Uh, and and the acceptance of that and the openness, I feel like that is mm-hmm. that's really shifted. I mean, I see it in my own kids who want to go um, resale shop. I mean, that's yeah. what they do now. That's that's the hobby. They would rather go to a thrift store yeah. than the mall. I would say our buyer base is they're very stylish. I mean, and they're intentionally buying resale, not just because it's sustainable, but because it's more interesting and it's more unique. And they like being able to choose patterns and prints and colors and styles, you know, that aren't just what you find in the mall right now. Hmm. Um, they like to mix and match and they, you know, their kids are really into dinosaurs and they need, you know, more choices to find those di- dinosaur, you know, prints. Interesting. Yeah. Whatever it might be. And and the that is a, is that a bigger factor than the financial piece of it? I mean, obviously you can get more for the money when you yeah. buy secondhand too. Yeah. I think it, the financial piece is about being able to access higher quality brands. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, people more and more now think about the resale value of something when they buy it. Um, hmm. And yeah, so, you know, and they want kind of nicer things and they want to be able to resell it when they're done. Sure. So, you know, we have number of, you know, cases of products being resold m- many multiple times. Um, and that's the mark of a really, you know, a high quality brand. Yeah. Um, but if you buy something, you know, it was a fast fashion item, it's just not going to last. And mm-hmm. nobody's, there's not a demand for it. So mm-hmm. if you buy certain brands where there is a strong demand for it on the resale market, um, you know, then you're barely spending anything. Sure. As your user base grew, um, you did raise more money mm-hmm. uh, along the way. And, and, and how did you, how have the two of you approached that? Is it just sort of when we need it, when we need to hire another engineer? How, how big yeah. is the Kitizen team at this point? We have, I mean, we're a team of like 10. We're still very small. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have raised money and that has, the majority of that does go to building a team and to marketing. Um, and, you know, we've approached it more on, are we at a point now where we could really go big with this? And, um, and if we are, then it's worth putting a lot of money into it to really scale it um, and to scale it as quickly as possible. Um, so, you know, that's how we've approached fundraising in the past. Yeah. You know, we are at this interesting point right now where resale is really taking hold. Brands are getting involved now, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, where we're at right now in terms of growing um, is the involvement of brands. Um, in this process, which a few years ago, you know, when we had conversations with brands, they thought it was, you know, would be ridiculous for them to get involved with resale. And now, you know, you see so many doing it. Sure, sure. That's changing. But yeah. before that, so so let's talk about the pandemic for, for mm-hmm. a minute. Yeah. Um, in the in the very early days, I mean, we weren't thinking about buying anything other than toilet paper and food, basically. <laughs> but but once we all kind of settled into being at home, you yeah. saw a spike in traffic. Oh, yeah. We, you know, tanked um, at that very, you know, right in end of March, you know, in 2020. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, everybody just stopped spending money on, yeah. except for toilet paper. <laughs> mm-hmm. Were you scared or did you realize this is not going to last i yeah at the beginning we're like oh well this is just you know this is temporary you know we're going to be done with this in a month Mm -hmm. (laughs) not done no but then yeah then sales spiked yeah um and and why is is it just because we were home and we had time to be shopping online 
Well, yeah, we had time to sell. You mm-hmm. know, there's more people listing and selling. Cleaning closets. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, there was, you know, we were all digital. Mm-hmm. We didn't have any um, supply chain issues. Sure. Um, so we just kind of checked the boxes for things that were, you know, s- still doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, and then, you know, people had the t- a little bit more time just yeah. to, to shop. And they were getting, you know, stimulus checks. And, you know, so it was just kind of the right combination. And and that wasn't a blip. I mean, that's been sustained. Mm-hmm. The, the growth has yeah. continued. You're now yeah. approaching how how many, how big is the Kitizen community of buyers and sellers? We have over 800. I think we're close to 900,000. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. So, so then the next big change and opportunity is brands saying, wow, all these people who love our brand are buying and selling it. Maybe we should get in on that. Right. I mean, Patagonia was yeah. out in front realizing that and doing it out of a sustainability play. We've seen more brands jump in in recent months. Madewell Mm -hmm. launched their own site to resell jeans. They used to collect them just to like give away. And then I guess they figured, hey, we could sell these. (laughs) And and then the customer gets a a, a credit for towards new jeans. Levi's did it. What what were you thinking as you started to see some of that happening? Yeah. So, you know, because Mary and I come from a marketing background, Mm -hmm. we are able to see all that was happening on Kitizen through that lens. Uh, And we're pretty astonished by the brand affinity, the brand love that happens in a resale community. Uh, And it, you know, the mark of a strong brand in our mind is how strong their resale community is. Really? Yeah. Like that means you have very loyal, very diehard people who love your product. Yeah. They love it so much. They want every print. They want every color. They, you know, they really, they know the lines, you know, the collections that you released from years ago uh-huh. um, and still have certain favorite prints. Uh, that sort of brand love, you know, that that happens in resale. Mm-hmm. And um, there was no way for brands to really be a part of that because these were happening happening in closed off uh, communities where brands don't really normally participate. And were you getting the sense from your discussions with brands that they were frustrated by mm-hmm. that, that they wanted to shut that down? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Originally, yeah, they, they thought it would cannibalize their own sales. They were like, we want to sell new stuff. Sure. We don't want you out there buying old stuff. But the fact is people were selling to buy new again. You know, mm-hmm. it was a sell to replenish type thing where right. they were able to afford higher price point items because they could sell them when they were done with them. Mm-hmm. And with kids stuff, you know, you're you're doing that constantly. Um so you can kind of get into this pattern. So what was the turning point for brands that that ma- that made it all click for them? I think they just started to, they saw that these resale communities were not going to go away. A lot of them have very passionate um, community resale communities um, within Kitizen on Facebook, and um, they weren't going away. They were only getting stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they knew that they were powerful, um, and they, they knew that they were good for their brand, but they just didn't know quite how to engage with them mm-hmm. um, and how to do it in a way that benefited everybody. So you came up with a way to do that. That's right. <laughs> so, so talk <laughs> about rewear and what, what's the vision? Yeah. So we started originally with what we call the Rewear Collective, which now has about a dozen brands uh, involved, um, where, um, and originally it was just, you know, helping them help their customers extend the life of the products that they purchase. You know, we give them resale data. They were able to tell their customer, hey, you buy these $60 shoes, the resale value is 30 to 35. So mm. you're going to get a return on your investment. So Interesting. At the, yeah. So at the point of purchase, it was giving customers more confidence in the purchase that they were making, knowing like, oh, okay, it's actually going to only cost me 20 or $30 to use these shoes for a period of time and then pass them on. Um, And then, you know, providing their customers with an easy way to do that, you know, knowing that for parents, it's a pain point to constantly have all the stuff that you're acquiring. Now let's give them an easy way um, to pass these things along to the next person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a win-win for everybody. Sure. 
Um, and then there, you know, the opportunity for to build that loyalty with your customer um, is a big piece of it. Yeah. Because with kid stuff, um, it is unique with that, that churn. Um, you want to get them, you know, kids wear uh, brands need and want to get parents on that sort of cycle of coming back to them each time they need to size up. Yeah. Because parents don't want to, you know, spend a ton of time exploring new brands and, you know, figuring out what is the best shoe brand for my kid or what, you know, you find that one and you stick with it. Yep. (laughs) Until they, until they hate it and move on to something else. But if you find a fit that works, then. Yeah. That they like, that they're, you know, they don't mind how the button fits and, you know, like all of that. (laughs) That's exciting. Yeah. Then you're, you love that brand. So then the, the next evolution of rewear is you taking your software your abilities yeah. to the brand and actually like white labeling creating yeah. a rewear site for them yeah when when did you get that idea and did you did it take a while were you shopping it around to brands saying hey yeah. we could do this for you yeah we've had the idea for a few years and we've been talking with brands and that was always our ultimate goal um was to get brands to the point where we could actually launch their own resale branded community hmm. um, that is, you know, part of the brand experience on their own site. Um, with, you know, the back end is entirely built by Kitizen and is powered by us. Um, it has all the inventory. Um, so a good example, we just launched uh, for Tea Collection, uh, Tea Rewear, um, which links from their site, but you can also go to teacollection.kitizen.com. And um, it is their own branded rewear site, um, their own resale community. It, it, it's hard to even imagine, I mean, how taboo that would have been a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go to the tea collection site, and this is a brand, if you're not familiar, it's, it's, a, it's, a, be- it's a boutique kids' yep. brand, has a very loyal following. Not the cheapest things that you can find, but, you know, good quality, $40, yep. $50 for yep. a sweatshirt or a dress. So you go to their website now and you can actually click right there to go to the resale. I can't imagine being able to do that when my kids were that age. Oh, I know. Uh, Yeah. And there it is. And and it's powered by Kitizen. Yep. And and the inventory is coming from Kitizen. Is it if I'm selling my stuff on Kitizen and it happens to be tea collection, it could end up getting routed to the tea collection site. Exactly. So when we launched, which was just um, last week, <laughs> um, we launched with over 20,000 tea collection items. So we didn't have any sort of cold start um, that you would find if you tried to build your own marketplace. You need sure. to um, figure out that chicken and egg and get enough sellers, you know, to supply the inventory and buyers to buy it. And, um, you know, that's always a juggle. So we're able to just, you know, launch immediately with a, a, a fully inventoried um, website mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and backed with a whole community right. um, of people buying and selling. So now you gain their customers because it's not just people coming to Kitizen. It's people mm-hmm. who already love tea right. who are now looking and ending up buying from yep. Kitizen. Yep. But what what is the what's the bigger opportunity for you? I mean, are you making lots of money building out these sites for <laughs> for for brands? Where, where what's the big opportunity? You know, we see it as more more spokes on the wheel, mm-hmm. so to speak. You know, it's going to where the customer is, and understanding that a lot of people, you know, they do like that. You know, they 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 want to go to the their their loved brands site, you know, and experience that and see what's new and and all of that. Um, and then, you know, to for us to be a part of that, I think is is really important um, versus, you know, always trying to pull people in. Um, it's a push versus pull, you know, sort of um, a strategy sure. where we can, you know, go to where people well, people are already shopping for tea. That's specifically what they're looking for. We have 20,000 tea items. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get that to them. Right. Um, you know, so that, that, that's our whole strategy there. And to do it for many other brands, you know, now that we have this one built, we're able to um, do it for other brands um, and spin them up pretty quickly. Yeah. And, you know, be a part of, um, you know, uh, these brands and part of their a solution that they can provide to their customers 
that they know that they want to Is be. this the future of retail? I mean, do you think there will be a day when every apparel brand is also selling resale of their own apparel brand? I think it's going to be table stakes. I think it's going to be, you know, those brands that do well and thrive will be providing resale as part of what they do. Hmm. I think a lot of customers, they, you know, they want to be able to shop both. And our users don't exclusively buy resale. I mean, they buy new and mm-hmm. they buy used. Um, and that's just part of the mix. And I think, you know, in 5, 10, 20 years from now, every consumer will have a mix of both. Right. Um, and there won't be, you know, sometimes they buy new, sometimes they buy used. And it's, you know, whatever one they like better, or, yeah. you know. It must feel gratifying that, I mean, you, you had this vision back in 2013 and, and here you are and it's proving out and, and everybody wants this now on both sides, the brand side and the consumer side. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty insane. Um, I wouldn't. Yeah, it's it does. It does feel good. <laughs> it should, right. <laughs> You've waited a while for that. Now, on the flip side, how does Kitizen compete with? I mean, you've got some pretty big competitors yeah. out there. You've got ThreadUp and Trove and I mean, others yeah. trying to get in on this space. And yeah, how do you do that? Well, I think, you know, we're unique in this space. Um, so, you know, brands like Trove, they provide what's a, called a managed marketplace. Um, so you send stuff into them and then they list um, and, and sell it. Um, and so there's no peer-to-peer interaction. There's no community. You don't sell it yourself. So you don't make as much um, when, when you do that because mm-hmm. there's obviously, you know, another party involved that needs to take a cut. Um, and um, you know, and so we, and then there are others that are providing the peer-to-peer marketplace, but that is all done in a vacuum, you know, where it's your, your own, there's no larger community backing it. Um, and so you have to, you have to get all that inventory, you have to supply both the buyers and the sellers. And, you know, and that, that does take some time mm-hmm. um, to build a marketplace, um, a peer-to-peer marketplace. Sure. Um, so we actually provide both. So for tea collection, um, we do, uh, all, you know, so people can either list and sell it themselves um, and make, you know, a larger portion um, of the profits. Um, and if you have the time um, to do that, you know, I think that, that that's great. If you don't, you can either, you can send it in to us um, and then you get a tea credit. So right now they're offering for each item you send in to us, you get um, a $5 credit to tcollection.com to buy something new. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, the loyalty piece sure. that is built in. Um, and um, so I think, you know, we are the only um, resale service that is providing both the peer-to-peer and the trade-in option. Got it. Got it. Oh, and one thing actually unique about tea is they're also partnering with their boutiques that sell their um, their stuff um, to be drop-off locations. So mm-hmm. you can either send it in or you can take it to any of the participating um, boutiques and drop it off there. And then you you actually kind of, I mean, I don't know, is it right to say crowdsource? I mean, you, you've got your kind of super shoppers yeah. who, if I don't have the time to start posting and listing and shipping, mm-hmm. there are other people who will do it for me. They're not fully yeah. Kitizen employees, right? No. And that is actually something that's unique to Kitizen as well, is we have what we call style scouts. So they are our power sellers um, who they um, can sign on behalf of other people in their neighborhood. Um, but they also, so if you, you know, and we have 135 across the country, we're looking to double that by the end of this year. Um, so in, in the Twin Cities, especially, we have a ton mm-hmm. of. Uh, Can they make good money? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, so they'll go and pick up your stuff mm-hmm. and they'll sell it for you. And then, you know, they there's a, a they take a cut. And so we do the th- same thing with the trade-ins um, that we're getting from brands. They're the ones who go to the boutiques to pick up the stuff and, mm-hmm. and resell it. 
the stuff that's getting shipped in is getting distributed to them and they're reselling it. And meanwhile, you don't really have to have warehouse space. Mm -hmm. You don't have to hold on to any of this inventory. Right. Brilliant. (laughs) Um, So is the next frontier moving in beyond kids? I mean, I know you do some women's apparel for the for the moms, but but do you want to move into other categories or, or what's next? Yeah. I mean, we would love to bring this. So we do have other categories, but 85% of our sales is um, apparel, shoes and apparel. Um, So, you know, I think that there's a huge opportunity to get into baby essentials. You know, you have the baby carriers and the diaper bags Mm. and all the swaddle blankets and the nursery decor. Mm -hmm. Um, You have toys and books. Um, There's a lot of very high quality toys out there that I think, you know, can have uh, a resale market mm-hmm. um, piece to 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 what they they do. They get more expensive to ship. They do. So I'm thinking, yeah, it would be you know the 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 smaller items, sure, right. Um, but that does you know there there is an opportunity for us to go local yeah. um, and to do more in person. Um, stuff, which is a direction we were headed in before COVID. Yeah, uh, we had all of these, you know, drop-off events, you know, for our style scouts, where people would drop off. You know, we partnered with um, um, local daycares and other like retailers to be drop-off locations, um, so you could drop off your stuff. And then our scouts would pick it up and sell it for you. Um, and then COVID hit. So, ah, yeah. okay. So derailed that, but you've yeah. been busy with other things That's and, right. and that you could still get back to that. Yeah, yeah. So what advice would you give other people who are, you know, at that stage where they're sitting with their best friend over coffee dreaming up ideas? Yeah, that, you know, you're going to fail a lot <laughs> and that that's going to be okay. Yeah. Um, really, you know, failure is just part of the process. Um, and we failed so many times along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we're not even running the business that we originally ideated on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that we, we got used to just, you know, falling down and getting back up. And, right. <laughs> you know, we've, we've felt so confident in what we were doing and what we were building. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be the key. You, you got to yeah. believe in it, even mm-hmm. when other people don't or they don't quite understand. Yeah. Yeah. You had to wait for them to catch up to you. Yeah, exactly. That's great. Um, do you want to do this forever? Do you do you have other ideas you think about? <laughs> do you want to sell it? What what's what's the what's the goal now? Yeah, I mean we always have I mean, we're entrepreneurs at heart. I will, you know, always if it's not Kitizen, it'll be, you know, probably another startup that we're working on. Yeah. Um, you know, I just I I love everything about it and totally hooked on on all of that. Mm-hmm. Um it's a total roller coaster ride, but um you do get kind of um the adrenaline and all of that is yeah. is, is fun. Yeah. Um I you know, if there if the right opportunity comes along, you know, I think that there are certain strategic um acquisition potentials out there that make a lot of sense that would make us better and stronger. Um, And so those are opportunities that, you know, we are certainly open to. And, you know, uh, you know, in the years to come, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think, you know, something like that to come along um, would benefit us and it would benefit our community and the whole, you know, and just help us to be better at what we do. All right. You heard it here. (laughs) <laughs> Dory, meanwhile, can we find some of your um, your son's clothes on Kitizen? Do, oh. do you sell? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do Are you sell. good at it? Um, you know, so my son, uh, he's 14. So I, you know, and I am still, fi- you know, you just go into drawers or whatever. You still find stuff from like. Totally. You know? And yeah, I absolutely sell it. And I, I love just, you know. Being closely connected to, you know, what our users are doing and right. what their experience is. When you're selling an item, do you put a little note in saying, you know, XO, the CEO? <laughs> I don't. I don't like people to know that it's coming from. <laughs> ah, you, you have a separate name for I, I your I try to keep sales. it on the down low. I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll have to try to see if we can scope you out. <laughs> it's such a great story and, and been so fun to, to watch you grow. And I know it's, it's still evolving. So congratulations. Thank you so much. It's nice to see that, that our um, conscience is catching up with our uh, consumer habits, too. Yeah. I mean, we're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> Tori Graff, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you. 
Well, Kitazin is an evolving story, and wow, it really feels like they have hit the jackpot at the right moment. Of course, let's keep in mind, it took them almost a decade to get to that right moment. They had to wait for the market to catch up with them. For more perspective on what they've built and this industry, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where Gino Giovanelli is a marketing professor. Gino, have you ever dabbled in, in resale? Do you ever sell kids' clothes? No, Allison, I, I haven't. And I, I think when I when I <laughs> Or your to own clothes? Podcast, well, that's the thing. I was like, one, I wish I had thought of something like this from a business idea perspective. And then two, I wish as a parent of kids, I wish I had used it when my kids were in that, you know, in that age range. And it's just it's I'm baffled by um why this hasn't come to light faster and sooner uh, than it has. Well, and that's what's so fascinating to me. I mean, it seemed like a great, interesting idea, you know, all those years ago when they started right. out. And yet they really did have to kind of wait for the market to catch up and, and for resale. I mean, the, the, the idea that resale is now outpacing retail right. and, right. and just how and the, the, the focus on sustainability. Yeah, it was kind of like the sleeping giant. I mean, I don't know if, if these are really new numbers, but like when you look at that, that resale uh, is outgrowing retail by 11 times and that kids apparel is the, is the highest growth area in resale. Um, with, and then the other stat with kids going through seven sizes of clothing in two years. Yeah. Um, that, that obviously isn't new, right? Um, that, that kids go through sizes really quickly. But this notion that uh, resale has become uh, chic almost. I mean, when I was a kid, the notion of, of getting used stuff was when you couldn't afford the new stuff, right? <laughs> right? And and now, you know, my kids, I have boys, right? And they, they hate shopping. They hate shopping. But the only shopping they like to do is thrifting because it's kind of fun with their buds, you know, mm-hmm. and they go find stuff that is unique and, and you don't see it in the big brands and, the, and you don't see it in the, in the shopping malls kind of stuff. So it's just it dawns on me like, wow, what a jackpot this is on so many different fronts. And what's so interesting is if you were to do this today, you'd, you'd be kind of right. late to the party. These insights are out there now, but they really mm-hmm. went on intuition. Totally. And that, you know, this is something in the classroom that I, I, I try to stress, Allison, is that, you know, the research is out there, the trend data is out there. Uh, but if you can mix that with some just your kind of your gut, um, that's, I think, where the magic happens. Like these two, Dory and Mary, both were parents, you know, parents of, of young kids, and they, they could kind of see these things happening. And they said, you know, what if, what if this whole resale retail thing isn't a uh, one versus the other, and it's more of an and, not an or? And they, I think they really, I think that's, a, I, has, I don't think that's going to come out in any research. I think that's a gut feel, hmm. you know, and that notion that people will resell in order to, to afford new things. And it's, so it's not one versus the other, A versus B, it's an and. And they just kind of put those two things together, not to mention the fact that they can almost think of the brands as, as not competitors per se, but the brands are, were, you know, originally were saying, hey, we want to sell new things. We don't want to get in this resale stuff. You're kind of taking away potentially uh, business from us. It could be cannibalization to realize, hey, brands, do you guys want in on this? Because people are going to want this whether you want them to want this or not. Right. That's the magic. Yeah, where you took someone who probably wasn't crazy about what you were doing mm-hmm. and, 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 and then bring them in as a partner. And turned like, it around. Oh. Another classroom lesson that I know you were thinking about as you listened to this conversation is this idea of impact versus burden. Talk yeah. a little bit about that. What does that mean? <laughs> so, yeah, this is my thing. You know, my students are like, anytime we have a tough decision to make, what do we do? And everyone goes, impact versus burden. Uh, this is something that... Um, you know, when we're evaluating in the classroom different uh, strategies for businesses to pursue, we look at it through the lens of impact and burden, not one or the other. You know, just to make sure, you know, when you say, hey, brainstorming, every idea is a good idea. Well, it is for brainstorming. But the minute brainstorming is over and we have tough decisions to make, I, I have my students run everything through this impact versus burden matrix to make sure you know, that, that if, the, if the things you really want to go after, they have to be worth it, both from an impact and a burden perspective uh, in, a, in a balanced fashion. And I think that's eye-opening for people because not every idea should be pursued. And I loved how, how Dory and Mary said, you know, we don't, if, if something's not working, we don't throw more money at it. We don't, we don't, we don't throw good money after bad money or, or even we don't take on every opportunity. We, we pick and choose. And that pick and choose thing 
if you can get it to impact versus burden, you're, you're putting sort of a quantifiable uh, measure on that. So it's, it, it, may, it may have been a gut feeling that you, decide, you, you, you identified the opportunity, but the decision whether to pursue it or not, I like to look at it more from a scoring perspective. So we score impact versus burden one through 10, high to low. Hmm. And then we plot it on a grid so you can see it really visually. Hey, that upper left-hand quadrant, which is high impact, low burden, those are no-brainers, right? Yeah. Careful, careful on the high impact, <laughs> high burden, because if, if it's only 10 of you, like their company is, I'm not sure they should chase all those high burden things, even if they have high impact, especially if they have things that are high impact, low burden that they haven't even done yet. And then stay the heck away from anything in that low impact. Even if it's, <laughs> even if it's low burden, it's just busy work. It's right. like that, that report that, that you figured out how to generate with a couple keystrokes that nobody reads. <laughs> it's right. Like, nobody what's the needs point? that. You can't make it easier and have it be valuable if it's not valuable in the first place. Well, what a great exercise for anybody thinking of starting a business or thinking of an idea. Thank you for, for giving away a little classroom secret, Gino. We appreciate <laughs> Absolutely. it. Absolutely. You know, Allison, you're always invited to McNeely Hall. Anytime <laughs> you, you want to drop in, that we, they'd love to have you in class with us. Good to know. I just might do that. And that's what Back <laughs> to the Classroom is all about. A little crash course. We love it. There you go. Gino Giovanelli, thank you so much for the insights as always. And thank you to our partner, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you want to know more about By All Means, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. You'll see past episodes and all sorts of great insights about the show and from St. Thomas. Thanks so much for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Forlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Associate Dean Laura Dunham, for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means. Mm-hmm.